the primary impact of certainly product marketing, messaging and positioning, like you see with positioning for advantage, the primary impact of that positioning work is in the consideration phase and later, but really starting in a very sharp way in the consideration phase. It is possible to, um, to seed concepts from later stages in the funnel into content created for earlier stages in the funnel. You are listening to This is Product Marketing, brought to you by Product Marketing Hive, a product marketing community that gives back. In this episode, Crispin Reed, founder of Product Marketing Hive, discusses the buyer's journey and how product marketing can effectively make an impact on the buyer's journey. Let's get to it right now. Today, we're happy to have Crispin Reed, founder of our community Product Marketing Hive, to join us. For all the new listeners, Crispin has been in product marketing and product management for more than 20 years in different roles, from product marketing manager to chief executive officer. He has worked in companies of different sizes. He's also a mentor to a few startup companies internationally, a true expert. This podcast episode is featured with some Caribbean nature sound in the background. So welcome to the show, Crispin. Thank you. Yeah, we'll see if we get some Caribbean rain. It's very special. So today's topic is buyer's journey. Shall we dive straight into it? Yeah, let's do it. What does a typical buyer's journey look like in a B2B environment? Right, yeah. So um, the basic structure of a buyer's journey is a sequence of stages that, uh, that the buyer goes through, um, sometimes also referred to as a, as a funnel. Um, and then, so there, are, so there are stages, and typical stages would be uh, an awareness stage, a consideration stage, maybe a trial stage, maybe some additional stage where the uh, where the deal is closing. And then, um, across all of those stages, you have different roles or different personas, uh, often referred to as a B two B persona. So different people, in other words, who are involved in the process of buying the software. You know, quite often there could be a technical role. Uh, as well as a business role, for example. So, so very often in, I would say probably always, always in B2B, B2B tech, there's, there's a distinction between an awareness phase, a consideration phase, and then very often a trial phase. So the, the, the awareness phase is where um, the purpose of your marketing efforts at that point are to get people aware that your company exists. That's the entire goal. So they, they've never heard of your company, they don't know you exist, and now, and now they do. So let's say, you know, PMM Hive sold a CRM system, Hive CRM. People know a lot about CRM, they've never, never heard of Hive CRM. Suddenly they've heard of Hive or, or Hive CRM, you know, that sort of mission accomplished from, a, from an awareness point of view. Once someone isn't aware that the brand exists, you then want them to, some of them, you know, never all of them, because there's going to be more people who are interested in the topic than who want to buy something from you, right? So you're always going to have a very sharp fall-off between the people who, who are happy to, to become aware of your company from the people who, are, who, who could potentially consider buying from you. But there are some people who could potentially consider buying your offer, particularly in the, if they're in the market, for example, for a CRM system. So next stage is consideration, and, and, and that phase is about getting someone to consider the idea of partnering with you, of, of, of ultimately buying your product. But, but that's, that's the whole purpose of that stage, is to get them to consider the idea. It's not to close the deal. It's not to sell them on it. It's not to make a final decision. It's just get them to consider it. And then after that, there's going to be a stage 
often when it comes to software, there's there's a there's a there's a trial stage or an evaluation stage, and exactly how that how that works obviously varies a lot between companies, but it's not unusual, uh, you know, to actually have a trial. You know, you might uh, you know especially if the software is more sold in a more consumer like way, you might download the software and actually try it out yourself. So you know that would be a free trial. Um, where things are much more complicated, if, you know, if, if it's a much heavier system that requires a lot of people, then there's still some form of evaluation. It might be proof of concept. It might involve a lot of people. You might have 20 or 30 people working on it. But, but the general idea is the same. You're trying it out. Uh, you might be trying out more than one solution. You're seeing how you like it. And then in a, uh, in a buyer's journey, there's an additional phase that, that I'm, I'm sort of thinking of these days. I kind of think of it as uh, a sort of an optional phase, depending on how big the deal is, really, which is a, there's like a last stage. Let's say it's, it's, it's a very expensive piece of software that, that, that someone is buying, and it's a complex sales cycle. So you have the main decision makers have been through the consideration phase. Um, they decided to go ahead and do an evaluation. They did the evaluation, and their conclusion is, yeah, you know, we'd really like to buy this software. We have, we have a strong preference, uh, and the strong preference is for this piece of software. Now, if that was a consumer-like, low-priced sale, there's not another step. There's just, okay, swipe your credit card and buy it. You know, if I like it, I'm going to buy it. I tried it, I like it, I'll buy it. But if it's, let's say it costs $10 million a year, there's, there's, there's another phase there, which is like, wait a minute, um, now we have to justify the economic value of this to the company. There's a lot of, lot of extra people who are coming into the process now. You've got procurement people in the process. The finance team cares. Lots of other roles show up and they start to look for economic evidence and other things. So there's a, when it comes to sort of very high-end B2B sales, there's an additional phase uh, where you need to provide economic justification. So, so that's sort of what a buyer's journey looks like. Um, awareness, consideration, trial, several different roles. I mean, some people would, would you know, go very far on these roles and, and, and you know, they might have dozens of them. Um, I think that for, for the, generally speaking, I don't think that's a good idea. Um, I think it's much more sensible to have a small number of roles, you know, maybe two or three. Ideally, for most companies, if you start to get more complicated than that, then, then you know, things just get very difficult to manage, even, even with very large teams. So uh, I would say, you know, so what this ends up being is it sort of ends up being, you know, maybe nine boxes, you know, three stages and three roles. Mm. So, so that's, what, that's what the buyer's journey is. And so, so, so that's what it is. That's what it looks like. And so then, then the question becomes, how do you, you know, what do you do with it? How do you apply it? How does this, how does this, this affect product marketing? So I guess we'll talk about that in a minute. Yes. So that leads to my second question. When does product marketing come into the play? Yeah. So, um, you know, one way to answer that question is, is that product marketing could be involved in any of those stages. Um, you know, certainly a product marketer could be working on the awareness stage. Um, but the, to me, that the primary impact, the primary impact of, of certainly product marketing messaging and positioning, like you see with positioning for advantage, the primary impact of that positioning work is in the consideration phase and later, but really starting in a very sharp way in the consideration phase. Because if you think about the awareness phase, what are you trying to do? You're, you're, you're trying to attract attention to the company, to the brand. You're trying to probably associate the brand with a particular space. So let's say, you know, if you're in the marketing automation space, you might be writing content about marketing automation. The content is not about your product, it's about the space. It's about marketing challenges, marketing automation, you know that. Um, so it's sort of, you know, general category level material that you would be making at that point. And you would have done that because someone in your company had figured that was a cost-effective way to drive people to your website, right? So yes, a product, now, now, so, so could a product marketer write that content? Yes, of course they could because 
um, your product marketers do know the space. So they're not, they're not the worst people to write that kind of content because they know about the general space. Um, now, you don't, that doesn't have to be written by product marketers, though. It could be sourced from third parties. It could be written by a writing team. Um, there's lots of good ways of doing it. And, you know, there, it's, it's possible to get good and bad content from any of the approaches, right? You can get bad content mm. from product marketers. Let's say they know the space well, but they're not good communicators for some reason. They don't write well, um, uh, you know, which isn't great for a product marketer. But there certainly are, are some product marketers who are not the best writers, but do have other skills. So they, they might not be the best people to work on that. Similarly, if you had a writer who was a great writer, but didn't really understand the space, you might end up with content which is sort of misses a little bit. Mm. Uh, which can be difficult sometimes for marketing teams to spot, uh, especially if the area is very complicated and the most of the marketing team don't understand it. Um, so yeah, but so so product marketing people could be involved at that at that level. But where the where the real product marketing work starts to become very important is in the consideration phase. Because don't forget what you're trying to do is you're trying to shift someone's mind from I've heard of this brand to um, to uh, if if I want to buy a product in this category, you know I think I think I think I would consider them. You know, not made a decision, but you know, I think these people should be on my list, maybe on my long list, right? So, so you're just trying to get that idea into their heads that there's enough there that they should look for more, right? So that's, a, that's really a product marketing art, is to give people enough information that is compelling enough, that differentiates you enough, and that sparks enough curiosity that the person will want to go and learn more. So it's, it's, it's really... You know that's really where 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 product marketing skills become become indispensable because a lot of the work in product marketing is deciding what you're not going to say, right? Because there's so many things you could say. There are so many benefits and so many advantages and so many things you could say about your product. Too much information is very easy to get to when it comes to product description. So so a great product marketer is going to take that down to its absolute essence, to the very bare piece of information or pieces of information that that will persuade someone that they should look more deeply and get the rest of the picture. So that's, that, that's, that's product marketing, um, you know, absolutely. Now, of course, if that work is done well, if those ideas are well-seeded into the mind of the buyer at that stage, then those ideas remain all the way through to close. So I would say that, yes, of course, a good product marketing piece of work can affect the consideration rate, you know, the number of people who are aware of the brand who then consider a purchase. It can affect that rate, but it can also affect the close rate because that, that, that those ideas have been planted and when they're executed consistently, as, as I expect we'll talk about throughout the whole process, then, you know, they become, if you ask the, the buyer later, why did you buy, they, sort of they, you know, they, they emerge as the reasons they decided to make the purchase, right? So yeah. So it's consideration onwards. I see. Many companies have identified the evolving buyer behaviors and shifted the purpose of marketing to engaging with buyers and helping them. Realize that we should treat our buyers as our partners of success rather than targets. What is the one thing so critical for marketers to make sure they're delivering the best buyer journey experience? Yeah, so this, this, this idea of marketing through being helpful is, is very important. And of course, you know, that affects every aspect of marketing. It goes far beyond product marketing. Um, it's particularly relevant to the earlier stages of marketing content because many companies have a tremendous amount of expertise in the space, which is, or could be if they choose to, to, to let it be, could, could be a benefit to many people who are never going to buy their products, right? Let's say you have a really high-end you know, system uh, that you know you can only sell to you know, 20 customers a year, you might have expertise that could benefit thousands and thousands of people who will never buy from you. So this idea of being helpful, of sharing your expertise with the world is, 
um, is very important. If there's one thing, um, I think, with respect to this whole topic of buyer's journey, you know, that, that, that really makes a difference, it's, it's, it's just embrace the fact that it exists, right? Um, recognize that there is a buyer's journey. And yes, you can criticize it. You can say it's a simplification and so on. And there's, there's lots of ways you can shoot down funnels and say they're no longer relevant. But, you know, and, and, and those, those criticisms are partly justified and partly also nonsense. Because in, in the end, someone does have a certain state of mind, right? Someone is either, I've just heard of your company, or they're looking into it more deeply, or they're evaluating it, right? So there's, there's enough truth in these notions that, uh, and also the notion of role, of course, right? And, and yes, there are lots of there's lots of blurring between roles these days, especially, and you, you need to embrace that, and you need to recognize it, especially between business and IT roles. We have very business-centric IT, we have very techno-savvy business, and so there's merging there. But there's also discrete areas where where there isn't overlap. You know, it's, you start to get into the microservice architecture of it, that's not really a business discussion. So just embracing the fact that the buyer's journey exists. And then, what does that mean? What, what that means is that when you create content, you very consciously write it for a particular stage and you don't confuse yourself and you don't confuse other people about who you're writing for. It's really about writing to an audience, right? It's like mm. I'm writing for an audience which is business buyers um, who are not considering my product yet. Um, and th- th- if, if you don't do this, if you don't embrace this idea, then you can end up accidentally and inadvertently producing you know, what you thought were quite good bits of content. But when you analyze them later, you think, well, maybe not because you might, you might end up starting with, with a topic which is a broad general interest and then suddenly you start talking about product features. They're like, wait, wait a minute, how did that happen? I was talking about something that was of interest to, to thousands of people, and now it's only of interest to my customers, right? Hmm. Suddenly, you know, in chapter three, or, you know, or, or the second page. And it's, it's just, just embrace the idea that these buyer's journeys exist, and so just be very mindful of that as you create content. What, who are you writing for? Audiences, yeah. yes. And where are they in their, in their process? Yeah. So there's a saying that um, 67% of the buyer's journey is now done digitally. I'm sure that 67% of the buyer's journey is all marketing doing its magic. I found another interesting number that Garner Research found was um, when B2B buyers are considering a purchase, they spend only 17% of their time meeting with potential suppliers. So when buyers are comparing multiple suppliers, the amount of time they spend with anyone any sales reps, maybe only 5% or 6%. That's very small. So how can product marketing effectively help this process in an especially hyper-competitive market? So you're asking about a very competitive market. And of course, in a, in a very competitive market, the question you have to answer is, why should I buy this product from you, right? Yeah. It's not, why should I buy the product? It's, why should I buy your product? So a, a lot of your marketing efforts, most of your marketing efforts are sort of focused on that fundamental question. What is it about my product that is different, that is better, that is more suitable for some buyers than everyone else's, right? So, so in that context, um, and given a situation, as you say, where the salespeople are getting maybe some face time with customers, but not very much, um, what is really important is, uh, is consistency. You know, well, obviously having, having good positioning and good messaging that you put together in a very thoughtful way involving you know, all the right people from the company. But once, once you have that, just executing it in a very consistent way so that, so that what people see on the website, what people see if they download collateral, what people hear when they speak to, um, uh, to people in the sales team, it is all consistent, which doesn't mean that it has to be repetitive completely. There's, there's some element of repetition, and repetition can be, can be helpful, but it's consistent. So in other words, behind all of this content, there is a big story. 
there's a story that you know that you've written down and then and then what you've done is you have found the right way to deliver pieces of that story through these different content types because you know a website is you know you, you might end up with a um, with a with a story with a narrative around your product that you know your CEO could 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 spend an hour on stage at a conference you know going through this narrative but on a website you have you have maybe 30 words for it right so there's there's different vehicles different types of content let you express different aspects of this overall bigger story mm. but if everything fits together and everything forms forms part of a more unified whole uh, the purpose of which is explicitly to to, to differentiate your product from the competition, then, then all of that is going to work well. So I think that consistency is absolutely fundamental. What are the best practices of marketing and sales collaboration to make sure that B2B buyers get this consistent experience throughout their buying journey? Well, what, you know, the balance between the digital channels and in-person channels. Yeah, so the, the, the key difference, of course, between sales and marketing is that marketing is about scale. Marketing is broadcast, at least you know, to some degree, and, and sales is conversational. It's, it, you're talking to individual people, right? I mean, that's, yeah. that's the fundamental difference. And of course, marketers will always try to get more precise about who they're talking to, and they'll try to narrow their audiences. And, that, and that's, you know, that's, that's part of what a buyer's journey does, right? The idea of a buyer's journey is that um, rather than only saying one thing to everybody, you, know, you do have an idea of what you want to say to different people at different stages in the, in, in, the, in the cycle. But then you've gone from saying one thing to saying nine different things, right? If you've got three stages and three roles. Mm. So it's still very much broadcast, um, very much broadcast. And, and, you know, and don't forget, you still have a website. So ha- however you've modeled all of this, you know, you're clicking on the product section of your website. It's not saying nine different things. It's saying one. Yeah. So that's the, the big difference between, between sales and marketing. So, so, what, so what you need to do to, to leverage the, um, the message that you are creating in marketing is to give the sales team tools, give them enablement, give them tools that they can use to, to deliver a message in a consistent way. So, you know, your story, your narrative, you have to give them all of the tools and very often this will include a lot of, a lot, a lot of PowerPoint slides. Mm. You know, give them PowerPoint slides so that, so that if and when they need to, they can tell your story in a very effective and a very compelling way. But then what you have to do as well is to accept and embrace the idea that, you know, they, they need to make those tools their own. So, you know, it would never be a good thing, um, you know, to expect salespeople to, you know, mindlessly go through a standard sales presentation with every customer because, you know, what's the point of that? You might as well just put a, put a video out on YouTube, right? Mm. The whole point of a sales conversation is it's a conversation so that so the, the salespeople understand the particular situation, the particular pains that this customer has. And so I would always consider slides that you give to salespeople. There are very deliberate design methods you can use to, to make them very easily customizable you know, to make the amount of detail or duration that they spend on a particular part of a story very variable depending on who they're talking to. You know, you, could, you can have slides that sort of, you know, explode in volume or collapse in volume depending on the desire of the salespeople. And then, you know, expect, expect and encourage the salespeople to, to make these slides their own, which will, which will be a combination of what they're hearing from their customer, but also personal preferences and personal passions. And, and mm. you know, I think that... You know, one of the one of the best things you can hear back from a sales force, you know, if you're asking about sales presentations, is you know, so you, so you go to your salespeople and say, okay, so, you know, how do you how do you like the company standard sales presentation? And the best thing that can happen in a way is they say, well, I don't know, I don't use it. And it's like, oh, you don't use it? No, 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 I don't use the standard sales presentation. I use my own presentation. It's like, oh, well, that's that's fantastic. Can you show me your your own presentation? And when they show it to you, it's all 
built on these slides that you produced, right? But they don't view it as your presentation. They view yeah. it as their presentation because they've customized it. They've, they've, they've moved things around. They've maybe, you know, embellished parts of it and they've made it their own. And that's, that's, that's really your goal because you can have all this customization happening and all this listening happening in the sales force, but the message is still transmitting through. The same story is, is, is underpinning everything. Um, and, the, uh, and the message is just, just getting amplified at each stage. Yeah, that's the best compliment you can get if a salesperson is adapting um, the sales deck from yours. What are the common mistakes product marketers make that can cause great negative impacts on the decision journey or take a toll on the decision journey? Well, I don't, I don't know about product marketers specifically, but you know, I think um, I think there are there are there are lots of possible mistakes. One one mistake is to be confused about what stage you're writing for. You know, that's a that's a potential mistake where you're sort of Mixing apple and apples and oranges in your buyer's journey, and, and and so, you know, you you can produce content which is just very difficult for anyone in particular to to, to digest. And, and another thing, of course, that can go wrong, and it could be done by product marketing, but it would be more likely probably not be done by product marketing, is just producing horrible content, right? Mm. I mean, this is the danger with all of this whole sort of idea that that has become content marketing, is that. Of course, the reason content marketing exists is because someone figured out this is a cheaper way to get visitors to a website than paying Google, right? I mean, that's that's sort of you know that's, that there's, that there's, that is a strong aspect to all of this, and so then people start to write not for the audience but for the search engines. Mm. They start to write for Google. They start to think about search engine optimization, and when that when that gets too much, I mean, you, you know, you end up with. Um, content where the only purpose of that content was to, was, was to get people to a website. But then the danger here, and, this, and this, is, this is a big danger, I think, in sophisticated B2B, and, and it's a danger that people don't think about enough, is that, wait a minute, what if someone actually reads this stuff? You know, you know what if your site metrics are looking fantastic? You're driving loads of content to your website. You know, you're super happy about how it's converting. But wait a minute, these are actual people, and they actually read that junk. And so what is the detrimental impact that has on your brand? What's the impact? Because, you know, if you, if you end up with this bunch of stuff that, that, that like technically converts, but it's nonsense, it's rubbish, it's <laughs> appalling, it's, it's like something that the audience knew when they were, you know, five years old in, in high school, but they're, right now they're, you know, they're CFOs or they're, you know, they're, they're in some sort of, you know, advanced position, they're, they're, they're operation, the sales operations managers or something like that, and you're writing them about this nonsense that, that you know, it's, it's just, I think you need to be very careful, much more careful, I think, than people are today with the quality of the content that gets pushed out at the top of the funnel because, you know, I mean, let's face it, when you look on the internet, most, if you are looking in, uh, in a competitive space, you know, by, the, you know, by which I mean, a space where a lot of people want to market, if you're looking into a competitive space, most of what you find is junk. It's awful, right? I mean, it's like content, content killed the internet. It's just horrible. So, you know, I think that's, you know, that's also something to, uh, uh, to, watch, you know, to watch out for. Yeah. So let's go beyond the basics. Are there more advanced ways to think about this whole buyer journey? Yeah, I think there are. Um, and, you know, I, I think that... Like, like any concept in marketing, I think that it's, impo it's important to fully understand the concept, to understand how to operate within, within that framework. But then there are sometimes opportunities that you can, that you can sort of go beyond that or that you can, um, you can break some of the rules mm. uh, in, a, in a way that, that, you know, that can work well. So you know, one, one of the, the a sort of general approach for doing this is that it is possible to... Um, to seed concepts from later stages in the funnel 
into content created for earlier stages in the funnel. Let me sort of, you know, talk about that. As, as so, so your later funnel stages, you're going to be talking about product advantages, right? Let's say, let's say you have a system and what the, the advantage of that, of that system is speed, right? It's, it's, really, it's really fast. I mean, it could be a financial consolidation system. It could be something in cybersecurity. It could be anything, but it's, it's, it's very fast, right? Mm. So obviously when someone eventually gets to that point when they're, when they're going through the consideration process, when they're looking at your product content, they're going to see the concept of speed you know, very, very visibly. But then as you, th- as you think about producing content, which is for an earlier stage, then are there smooth ways that you can introduce some of those concepts to that earlier stage con- you know, c- content? Let's say you're writing about best practices. You're writing about best practices you know, for doing something, whether it's cybersecurity, financial consolidation, you might write about obstacles. You know, let's say your goal is to close the books more quickly. What are the obstacles to a fast close? What are the obstacles to data protection? And as you sort of write about those obstacles, you can introduce some of these ideas that are going to come back later in your marketing. So you know, there are some, there are some you know, sort of sophisticated ways to do early stage content that prepare people mentally for what they're going to see as product advantages later. But you know, to, if, if, you, if you're going to do that, they need to do it well. So, you know, the, the way you do that is you're still not, if you're, if, you're, if you're at the sort of top of the funnel, you're still not pitching your product. You're just talking about issues that you're going to address later. So you're sort of setting yourself up for success um, a bit further down the line. To hook some um, differentiators into the early content, would that be dangerous? No, I mean, this is, no, this is what you can do. Let's say, if, you know, if you, if you differentiate it around speed, let's say, you can start to talk about that as, a, as an issue in, in, in earlier stage content, but without talking about your product at all. Yeah. You know, there are, there, there are also some good ways of doing this in, even in a single piece of content where you do actually sort of start from a business problem and you take it all the way through to the product itself. Um, but that's, you know, that would then be more of a narrative that, that doesn't really sit at the beginning of the uh, funnel. It's, uh, you know, it's more of a connection piece that connects the business issues through to the, through to the product later. Yeah, I see. So thank you for joining us today to share your expertise with our audiences. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure. Thank you for tuning in to This is Product Marketing, brought to you by Product Marketing Hive, a product marketing community that gives back. Check out our website, productmarketinghive.com, to join our community, meet fellow product marketers, and access free resources, including training, playbooks, templates, and events. If you enjoyed our podcast, please subscribe and give a five-star rating on the platform of your choice. See you next time.